This is a Federal News Network podcast. It took an extraordinary combination of government and the pharmaceutical industry to come up with COVID vaccines so fast. My next guest was Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health Policy at the Health and Human Services Department during the Clinton administration. Now he chairs the Health Policy and Management Department at Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health. We welcome Dr. Ken Thorpe. Dr. Thorpe, good to have you on. Oh, thanks for having me on. And I did a little research, and it was nearly 50 years between the discovery of the polio virus and the advent of a vaccine. And that had, a, in some ways, a much more rocky rollout than these vaccines have had. What happened here that we need to kind of bottle for the next time? I think having this public-private partnership was the real key, where the federal government basically upfront pre-purchased hundreds of millions of doses of a vaccine to be developed that provided the economic foundation to allow the drug companies to do the basic research quickly. So having that commitment to buy hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine upfront really accelerated the development of this vaccine. Clinical trial process is is very time consuming. And so by allowing them to sort of buy in quickly into a network of people to do the clinical trials also shaved off a tremendous amount of time of developing these drugs. So, you know, not to get into the politics of it, but the term warp speed then wasn't really a bad term for what occurred. No, not at all. I mean, it's incredibly fast compared to other types of vaccines, which take, as you talked about years and years and years to develop. I mean, getting this done, you know, basically within a year was just absolutely remarkable. And so, you know, kudos to me go out to the uh, researchers at Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson that developed this in really record speed. Well, who paid for it in past rounds of development of vaccines? The government underwrote it this time, but somebody's got to pay for them eventually. So how did that speed it up relative to other developments? Well, that's been the dilemma. I mean, it's the uh, private sector who's funded this. And for a lot of vaccines, the population, not in this case, there's a lot of people affected by COVID. But for different types of vaccines, the population is oftentimes very limited. And so you have a low reimbursement rate, limited population. So the incentives to innovate are very limited because it's just the private sector upfront doing the investment. So this model of having it pre-funded by the government really allowed the private sector to do its magic and innovate very, very quickly. And were there developments in the science of developing vaccines itself that might have also sped it up, even with some other funding type of model? Well, sure. I mean, they had experience in dealing with coronavirus in the past. This is a different, the SARS-CoV-2 is a different variation of it. But certainly the science was there to have some some basic framework of uh, how to develop it. But really, it's it's a combination of having the upfront funding, getting the clinical trial process set up faster. Those were two of the big keys. And what about the idea of the FDA having kind of a fast track approval? Because even now, when you go for the shot, there's a warning or they hand out literature. In my case, it's through CVS that says you know, this is not an approved vaccine, which is to say technically it didn't has not yet gone through the full FDA vetting. Right. Well, that process, that emergency use authorization process is critically important. So they're still doing research, uh, obviously, in terms of the impact the vaccine has on longevity, different populations. Technically, you're right, it's not completely, quote unquote, fully approved. But this emergency use authorization process, again, you know, just procedurally allows us to get the vaccine to market much, much faster. Just speaking from your background, there's no danger that this vaccine could suddenly rise up and kill people five years from now. No, I don't think so. I mean, again, we have experience with similar vaccines. Um, You know, they have been doing research on 
side effects. Uh, they are continuing to do research on side effects and track that down. Today, we don't see uh, much evidence at all. Some people have some mild reactions to it uh, that are short term and uh, last maybe a day or two, but they're, they're really pretty limited in terms of the side effects. We're speaking with Dr. Ken Thorpe. He's chairman of the Department of Health Policy at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. And what's your sense of what the HHS role might have been in this case, other than standing by and just shoving the money at these companies? Well, again, I think they set up the framework, you know, the thought process of actually developing this public-private partnership. You know, as I can think about it, we've had sort of two good examples of public-private partnership that has resulted in incredible innovation and incredible medical importance. This is one, funding the Human Genome Project, uh, another, the basic science of mapping the uh, genetic composition of individuals, the 23 chromosomes has really resulted in a whole new set of medicine that really better matches pharmaceutical treatments to people based on their genetic composition because people respond differently uh, to different types of medications. So uh, this is a really good model. Going forward, we have other challenges. Antibacteria is a growing problem. Those infections have doubled over the last decade. The dilemma there is uh, a lot of people, but it's still a limited number of individuals, three or four million individuals. So the incentives to innovate is just really not there. The economics don't work out. So that'd be another model where the public sector could step in and pre-fund buying some of the doses that would allow the private sector to go ahead and innovate. There really hasn't been any innovation in that space in, in years, despite the fact that it's a problem that's longstanding. Sure. And should the COVID become something like the flu shot every year where you need a new variation and this is something we're just going to have to live with forever and getting a shot, what are the economics, what might they be going forward when everyone will just get a shot now? You know, my employer pays for a flu shot. I'm presuming they cost pennies at this point. What do we know about the possible future economics of a yearly COVID vaccine? And can this be something now that can be in the private sector? Well, yeah, I think going forward, it would probably be largely privately financed, but I think that's where the research needs to keep going. Uh, We don't really have a a complete understanding of the longevity uh, of the uh, vaccine and whether or not uh, if you take it uh, twice with the Pfizer vaccine, for example, whether that sort of uh, provides immunity for a very long period of time. The key here is to get large numbers of people vaccinated, plus, you know, we'll have some people exposed to it that have built up antigens. And hopefully at that point, the transmission rates are virtually eliminated. And so that will be the key is eliminating the transmission of the virus from person to person. And from your standpoint as running a health policy and management department in a public health school, what have you seen among the students in terms of what this might engender in interest in the whole public health question? Because now it's something that everybody feels like they're involved with. Well, it's uh, it's really interesting. The uh, number of applications that we've had to the School of Public Health overall and our Department of Health Policy Management at Emory have skyrocketed. We've had a huge increase in interest and in applications in public health, which is really, to me, encouraging that we have a you know large number of potential students interested in this topic. There, there's so much going on in public health policy right now that it's a great area for you know any undergraduates to come in and really explore the future of policy in this area. And there's a whole new team coming into HHS now under the Biden administration. What should they do first to kind of, as we said in the beginning, bottle the learnings here, even though they might have been initiated in the prior administration? But, you know, that's politics. But among those that really care about the details of this, there's probably not so much politics. Doctors succeeding other doctors and so on. What should be their first priorities now? 
Well, I think taking away some lessons on how to do a better job, perhaps on the, on the next pandemic, whether it's if that's influenza, heaven forbid, something like smallpox. I mean, there's going to be something downstream that, that's likely to happen. And I think there's a bunch of takeaways. One is messaging, having sort of a uniform message from the federal, state and local governments about the nature of the problem and the severity of the problem. Stockpiling supplies. That might be real simple, but if you think back uh, on the early uh, year ago, our ability to get sort of N95 masks, just basic personal protection equipment was limited because we were importing it. So that was not under control. We need to figure out how to stockpile this and have it regionally distributed and available so that for the next pandemic that happens, that we have a ready-made ability with personal protection equipment to quickly distribute. So there's some really good takeaways to think through. So hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Exactly. We need to be more agile to right now anticipate the next version of this and have the supplies we need either in place or have a production and distribution network domestically in place that we can really move quickly, be more agile in responding to whatever the virus may be. Dr. Ken Thorpe is chairman of the Department of Health Policy and Management in the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me on. Really enjoyed it. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great men, theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader. All of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, over two million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about, um, 
empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all, but is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. I've uh, led, this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime and uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.